Ooh, that works. <laughs> and good evening, everyone. We welcome everyone, those who are here in person as well as online, to our mini-series, a five-part series that's entitled Getting to Know You, God. And in this particular series, what we're going to be doing is exploring better ways to develop an intimate relationship with God. Let us pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you so very much, Father, for the opportunity that we have today. Heavenly Father, we know there's so many, not only in this congregation, but other congregations and those who are not associated with you at all, Father, going through a lot of trials and tribulation at this time. But Father, we know that you have the ability to help each and every one of us if we would truly come to you in faith, praying that all things be done according to your will. And Father, we thank you for this wonderful blessing. Father, be with us tonight as we explore this lesson. Father, may we glean from it what is necessary for us individually to get to know you better, to have a more of an intimate relationship with you. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So in this lesson, we will dig deeper into the essential character of God. We will find that what God really wants from us is this. He wants us to, to get to know him, and he wants us to get to know him intimately. Now, what we need to keep in mind about this and make no mistake about is this right here. It doesn't matter how spiritual and or religious our friends and family are, because this is something, an intimate relationship with God is something we must do on our own. We must figure out how to do it on our own. But not only that, we must go about the business of doing that. So tonight, tonight, we will examine common, if you will, a common but incorrect idea about God's character. The incorrect idea that I'm talking about actually hinders us in our ability to get to know God and our ability to have that intimate and personal relationship with him. They, it hinders us from having a perfect relationship with him. So in that, I would say this. It is unfortunate. It is unfortunate that so many believe that God wants us to be afraid of him. They want us to be afraid of him. That's what they think. And I can see the confusion. I can see the misunderstanding and all. But, but this confusion or, or this misunderstanding of God's position is really, I should say, is, a, is confusion regarding God's position and how God uses his position. And when we look in the Bible, what we're going to find is in many instances, we read of people who come in direct contact, face to face with God. And as we read about it, we find that that person was afraid. The person was afraid. And we can see examples of this in the book of Job. Uh, when we see Job came face to face or in direct contact with God, this is what Job had to say at, at Job chapter 40 at verse 4. He said, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And again, at Job, Job chapter 42, at verses 5 and 6, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. 
the Apostle John at Revelation chapter 1 at verse 17 has these words to say. He says, by inspiration, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. These men, they were afraid. They were overwhelmed at their meeting with God. But you know, when we think about it and look at what we were reading here, it wasn't a fear of violence or, or some type of injustice at all. The type stuff I'm talking about that we feel when we are confronted with someone who we feel is, is more evil or more powerful than we are. What we find is this. Direct contact with God for these men produced an awe. When I say an awe, I'm talking about a reverent fear. <laughs> you know, a reverent fear. Okay. <laughs> when, a, and we, when I say a reverent fear, I'm talking about a reverent respect. So it produced an awe generated. Why? By being in the presence of God, one who was so great, one who was so majestic than the human composure could even bear to stand. In actually seeing God, they realize the difference then between themselves and their creator. They, should actually, they could actually uh, measure, if you will, to an extent, God's greatness against their smallness, and they were, they were humbled. They were humbled into reverence by this experience. Now, when we think of this awesomeness of God, there are many words that, 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 that can be used to, to describe the greatness, to, to describe this majesty that we're talking about. Words such as the otherness of God, the transcendence of God, the awe-inspiring reverence of God. But the term that the Bible uses most often it's not all of those words. The term that the Bible used most often to describe the essence of God is a four-letter word, and that word is holy. In, in, in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as the Holy One of Israel. And what we find when we look in the book of Isaiah alone, we find 25 times where God is referred to as simply the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah, Isaiah could say this with accuracy. Why is that? Why? Because he, Isaiah, came face to face with God and described his, his experience in a, in a vision, if you will. A vision where he caught a glimpse of God's holiness. Now, when we think about the prophet Isaiah, what we know about him is that he served as counselor for many years. And, and, and then, when I say counselor, I mean of Jewish kings. And then in the year of 742 B.C., we find that after, he, after the death of King Uzziah, that Isaiah entered into the temple to pray. And while he was there praying, while he was there praying, he had a vision of another king. Now, this king that he had a vision of, it was the one who sat on a heavenly throne. And in his description of this scene, Isaiah says that, Isaiah 6 at verse 1, while there, I'm sorry, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, 
with the train of his robe filling the temple. We think back on this moment, what he was writing about. Isaiah is writing, and as he writes, he writes by saying that above this king hovered angelic beings called seraphs. In Isaiah's vision, they would use four wings to protect themselves. Now, I think they had six, but they were using four just to protect themselves. And they weren't using the other two to protect God. They were using the other two to remain aloft. Because, you see, God doesn't need protection. The prophet says that he hears them calling out one to another. They're calling out the words, holy, holy, holy. And this is repeated three times. It is said it's repeated three times because in saying holy, 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 they are honoring God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They proclaim holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see this in Isaiah 6 at verse 3. The experience here also revealed to Isaiah the true condition of an impure and a weak man when compared to the majestic beings in his vision. And we find as we continue reading there that only when a coal is taken from the altar and used to purify his lips was Isaiah permitted to speak and as he stood there before God. This same image we find that it is repeated in the vision that the Apostle John had in, in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, when he was describing his own experience in the presence of God. Revelation 4, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the mighty who was and who is and who is to come in these in these and other heavenly scenes God is described as holy and man's natural reaction is this it is fear it is reverence it is an awe respect a reverent respect if you will in the presence of such majesty this was not a fear of terror. It was not a fear of worry. It was not a fear of panic. It was a healthy, it was a, a respectful reverence for a being who is in every way greater, greater than the people who were privileged to be before him. Not greater for the purpose of harm. And when we think about that, when we think about that, that's often the case when we're dealing with human beings and their sinful power. But this person was greater for the purpose of encouraging, for reverence, for obedience, and for love. 
God's greatness should not inspire fear. God's greatness should not inspire fear. That is, <laughs> that's always that caveat. That is, unless we are called to judgment for the sinful rebellion that we have perpetrated or our sinful disbelief. But for those who seek God, for those who, who seek his greatness, they sh- this should provoke them to a desire, if you will, to serve and to be like God. First Peter 1 at verse 16, the Bible says this right here. You shall be holy. Why? Because God says, I am holy. His holiness should motivate us then to do what? It should motivate us to pursue holiness in our own lives. Now, when we started this class tonight, I stated that as we go through this lesson, we find that God wants us to learn how to have an intimate relationship with him. And in the process of learning how, we must also do it. Because, you know, there are a lot of things we can learn from a book, but there are a lot of things we don't do because we don't put what we learn into practice. But God wants us to learn from the book called the Bible and then put those things into practice. And put those things into practice. But it's not something that comes about because of osmosis. And I can't say this enough. This cannot be saying enough. You know, a lot of people tell me they were born into religious families. They were born into families who went to church all the time. Well, I wasn't. (laughs) I wasn't. But sometimes when people make that statement about what they were born into, they assume that by virtue of the fact that mom and dad were, were, went to services regularly, that mom and dad did their best to, 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 to imitate God and have an intimate relationship with God, that somehow meant that that automatically translated under them simply by rubbing elbows with them every day. Osmosis is never mentioned in the Bible for coming to Christ Jesus. What's mentioned in the Bible about coming to Christ Jesus is, is having that relationship with him by getting into the waters of baptism, being united with him, being resurrected in newness of life, but never osmosis. If we want to do osmosis after we go through it, how about rubbing elbows with Christ Jesus a little bit every day when we get in the word of God to study? But not because mom and dad are good at this. Mom and dad got their way through practice. And hopefully mom and dad is teaching our children that's how they get there, through practice. You see, here's the point. I can only imitate Christ Jesus for myself. No one can accomplish this for me. Not even Christ Jesus. I should say he won't do it for us. He would be our mediator. He would be our intercessor. He would be our savior. But he is not going to imitate Christ for me. I'm going to have to get up and do that on my own. The reason why God wants us to be holy is that being like him, that is by cultivating this personal holiness, if you will, this is the best way to really get to know God. To view his holiness should, should not result then in and frightening us, but rather it should encourage us to to imitate him. We we are to imitate him in his holiness, and therefore we need to understand 
what his holiness is. And in understanding what his holiness is, there's two things I want to present to you. One thing his holiness is is separation. Separation. And when the Bible talks about a holy day, talks about a holy day, for example, it means that this is a day that is set apart or designated for a special purpose. In a similar way, God's holiness implies that he is separate. It implies that he is special. He is separate from the creation and that in that he is not part of the creation, but exists in another dimension, if you will. He is not human in nature, although human beings do have similarities to God. In other words, he is not like us. And we are in some ways like him. God is not who or where we are. God's holiness is seen in his uniqueness. It's seen in his in this state, if you will, which is which is apart from us and, and the world that we live in. To be holy means that we are to be unique and separate from what is around us. Think about that. In our effort to be holy like God, we must also be unique. We must also be separate. Separate in the sense of who we are and where we are. Now, many have tried to achieve this. Many have tried to achieve this, this, this uniqueness, this, this, this separate goal. And they, they tried it by going off into, if you will, that, that secret or a quiet place and living this re, reclusive life, if you will, that's devoted to contemplation and self-denial. We, we see a good example of this. We look back in the 18th century and we see those agrarian communities that, that did things like this. And others have attempted, if you will, to, to establish a state of holiness that is, again, this separateness and uniqueness by creating a manufactured environment. And in doing so, they think, and they think that by maintaining this, this kind of a lifestyle, that it is the key to developing the type of holiness that God is talking about. And, and if you think about what we're thinking about here, we think about those communes that we see uh, around town, those closed communes that's, that's overseen by some modern-day prophet, if you will. That's not how God does things. The way to be separate the way to be holy is to go to the place where God is. Not create some sort of holy environment, if you will, for ourselves. For example, if we want to go where God is, examples, John 1 and verse 1, we must go where his word is. Why? Because he is there. 1 John 4 and verse 14, we must go to our knees in prayer because he listened to us there. John 4 verse 23, we must go to worship him because God is searching for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, who will worship him in sincerity. If we want to go where God is, we must go into the battle against 
not only sin, but our own sin and the sins of the world. And when we do, what's going to happen? We will find the Spirit of God is waging war there as well. Romans 8 at verse 13. We must go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why? Because Matthew 28 at verse 20 promises us this. God will be with us always to the end of the age. A holy God is in these places. And we find him there by imitating him. And, and we imitate him and we separate ourselves from this world and go to where God is and where he calls us to be with him. Now, the second distinction, other than the separation, that, 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 uh, that's a feature of God's holiness is absolute purity. Absolute purity. God is completely pure. Now, what does this mean? This means that he does not, he cannot sin. Sin is a problem that affects humans. It does not affect God. Which is to say, every thought, every intention, every action of God is absolutely pure from the beginning to the end. And this purity is at times describes in terms of moral perfection, if you will. But it is done in order to show how different God is from man. Even if there was no sin in existence, check this out. God's holiness would still be described in terms described in terms of absolute purity. A more accurate image is that of light. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 17 referred to God as the light of Israel. And he made this statement when he was speaking of God's holiness. Jesus said, John 8 at verse 12, I am the light of the world. 1 Timothy 6 at verse 16, Paul writes, that the Lord dwells in unapproachable light. It is not that that God reflects light or needs light. It's not the case. The case is this right here. God is the source of light. He gives off light. And when I say he gives off light, I'm not talking about the stuff like we're looking up here. Um, it's nice and bright right now, but over a period of time, it starts to get a little bit dim. Then eventually walk in here and Russell look up there one day and, and he have to go get that cute machine that you raise up to start replacing bulbs. God's light doesn't work like that. It doesn't burn out. It doesn't grow dim. His light is absolute reality, absolute truth and absolute power. And how does this come about? It comes about as a result of this absolute purity because that is what is generating all of this. Paul tells us to walk in the light as children walk in the light at Ephesians 5 at verse 8. And when we do, what are we doing? We are tapping into this absolute reality. We are tapping into this absolute truth. We are tapping into this absolute power. And it's a glimpse of the light and purity 
that fills our dark minds. It fills our, our dark hearts with, with hope and reveals the, the true darkness that is found in the world. So if our quest then is to be like God, if our quest is to be like God, and it should be, it should be, then this quest must include an effort at purity. But like everything else with God and Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit helping us, when we hook up with them, our weak effort at purity becomes absolute purity. In the Beatitudes, at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, what does Christ Jesus say when, he, when he's preaching there? He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who want to know God, those who want to know him, especially in the context of this purity, this absolute purity that we, we are talking about, they, they never take sin lightly. Every sin they realize, we realize, is an affront to God and threatens our relationship with him. Purity in our lives means that we do not want to and neither do we make, make excuses for our sins, nor do we tolerate it within our lives. Now, it doesn't, I didn't say we don't sin anymore. I'm not even going to tell anybody that. I wouldn't even go there with that. But I'm saying we don't tolerate it. How do we know we don't tolerate it? When we do it, we repent and we mean it. Purity requires us to, to be at war to be at war with sin so that the blood of Christ Jesus, this blood that we are talking about, can continually purify us and allow us to stand in the presence of a holy God, to stand in the God of light. In the presence of the God of light, I should say. But think about this and keep this in mind. When God, when God seems far off, or when our relationship with him seems dry and dark, there may be a reason for that. There may be a reason for that. And the re- reason may be because we are not where we are supposed to be. We are not acting the way we are supposed to be acting. Or better still, I am not where I am supposed to be. I am not acting like I'm supposed to act. The, the, the important part of wording that like that, because it leaves me of the responsibility of trying to put it all on y'all. I need to take some responsibility for me. All the eyes in here need to take responsibility for the eyes in here. Not the us or the days or the them for the eyes in here. Because on the day of judgment, I stand before God, not us. I have to answer for what I did, not us. I. It is unfortunate. It is unfortunate that people are afraid of God. That is unfortunate. Instead of having a reverent respect for God, they are actually afraid of God. That kind of fear, 
this is going to sound like a play of words, so I'm going to go really slow with it if, if, as I can. That kind of fear is a sign that I may know God is there. Okay, okay, got that? I may know God is there. Okay. But I don't really know the God who is there. You know the age of saying there are no atheists 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 in foxholes? <laughs> there aren't. And when those bombs started flying, that boy that told you 15 minutes ago that they don't want nothing to do with God, and those bombs started flying, they the first one to yell out, God help me! They know God is there. But they don't know him. And that's a big difference. And I hope no one sitting in this room who calling ourselves Christians can make a statement like that and, and be truthful in saying, I know God is there, but I just don't know him. No, no Christian should be able to say that in any truthfulness God does not want us to be afraid of him God wants us to know him God wants us to be like him and what does that mean it means that we need to be set apart to where he is what does this mean it means that we need to be pure and full of light why because God is light with the gospel with the gospel it is possible to go from where we are to where God is. With the gospel, it is possible to put aside what we are and become who we, who I am, who I am. It's like that Chinese Proverbs. What I am, I could never change. Who I am is always changing. When we become Christians, the what is put aside and the who steps into place. And every day that we stick our heads in the word of God, every day that we meditate on the word of God, every day that we go to God in prayer, every day that we acknowledge who God is, the who we are changes for the better. We are the ones that want to bring up the past, what I used to do, what I did then. God can't forgive me. God never said that. Human beings are the ones who say those things. In the heavenly vision, Isaiah. Isaiah was purified by a hot coal from the altar. In the New Testament, another image is used to signify the purification of the heart and the life of the one who wants to remain in the presence and service of a holy and mighty God. A pure God. Matthew 22 at verse 16 tells us that, that what gives us this imagery. It gives us the imagery of, of cleansing water, of the cleansing water of baptism, if you will. Those who wish to know God, those who wish to be like God, be, began by confessing our faith in Christ Jesus. We repent of our sins and we are immersed in the waters of baptism. And man, it is not over yet. We live the rest of our lives in faithful, faithfulness and obedience. When we are immersed in the waters of baptism, all of our sins are washed away. All the impurities of the soul are washed away. And at this moment, 
at this moment, the purified sinner, which all of us <laughs> have been there and done that, receives the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit becomes the inward source, if you will, of divine light that will not only create the holy life Christians are called upon to live. And when I say that, no matter what one's lifestyle was, uh, 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 how one was living, but will ultimately, it will ultimately transport the believer into the dimension of heaven where God really dwells. This lesson is yours tonight. I truly hope everyone here is striving to have an intimate relationship with God, striving to know him, not just know he's there, but know the one who is there. It reminds me of uh, something I came across oh, probably about 20 years ago I was studying, and it talked about this uh, this gentleman, he was a great orator. I mean, the, the guy could talk and it, the paint would roll off the wall. The guy was so smooth and so gifted. But he read, this, this, this preacher was at a, a play where he read the 23rd Psalm, and he was really impressed. The guy was eloquent. And they happened to be on the train together, and they were sitting next to each other. And the, and the preacher mentioned that he saw him do his, his, his act the night before, and he said, man, you were so eloquent. You see, you, you were just eloquent. And the guy said, you read it. And he read it. The preacher read it. And he said, this is the difference. Okay. I read it like I knew what was written in the book. You read it like you knew the one who wrote the book. Let us strive for a relationship like that. Yeah, we know what's in the book. But let us know what's in the book because we know the one that wrote the book. That's an intimate relationship with God. Thank you all. I look forward to seeing you next week. Oh, one question I, you, you guys could do. You can work on this one on your own. Think about it. How can you use this lesson to grow spiritually and help others into a relationship with Jesus? How can, you, how can I use this lesson to grow spiritually and help others come into a relationship with Jesus. Uh, our microphone is not working, the handheld. So when we get ready to do the devotional, we're going to have uh, people up in the, in the pulpit area. So um, unfortunately, we're going to have to break down and buy another one, one of these, uh, when Josh gets back. So thank you all again.